And that's why Paul's central theme, actually, in this book, if you had to look for it, is contained in one verse, which will pop up now. Flashback to what we covered in the earliest days. This is what Paul's writing to about. He's talking about Jesus and the different Jesus makes, and this is the verse he speaks to. He says, the whole point of Jesus, the whole plan is this, to unite all things in him, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What he's describing here is that Jesus Christ isn't just a good teacher. He's not just kind of like earth's best teacher. He's he's God come from the heavens as man, and he's going to unite all things, all the depths of our sin, all, all our differences, all our hostilities, and yet the goodness and the grace and the perfection and the power and the abundance of who God is. He's going to unite all those things, seemingly ununitable things. He's somehow going to bring together sinners and perfection. Those who, who rebel against God and God himself are going to get united in one. This unity is going to be something that Christ plans and performs. And so when he wraps up this first half of the letter, the last couple of verses of the first half of the letter, Paul's just reminding them of just this incredible truth that Jesus Christ is the one who's going to unite people. So just as they're having problems trying to find each other and, 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 and as Jew and Gentile unite, he's going to remind them of, of who it is that they need to look to. So here are the final two verses of the first half. It's Paul writing, and he says this, Now to him, Verse 20, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Maybe I'll read it again. It's a short one, so we can actually do it. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It's true to say that Paul at this moment is just getting fixated on God. He's not getting fixated on the question of does the church have a future. He's not getting fixated on his uh, jail conditions. He's not getting fixated on all the differences. He's saying it's Jesus that we turn to. It's remarkable. And it's something actually called doxology. It's just a, a term that just refers to not just praise but adoration, something overflowing, something so exciting. Kind of had a little glimpse of this last week when Bafana Bafana won a soccer match. I don't know if you were there for the occasion, but we played against Egypt, 75,000 Egyptians in the stadium. I said, I'm just going to watch the first half, but something miraculous happened. We played well, and I couldn't go to sleep. I couldn't go to sleep, but it was just so exciting. Leanne went to sleep, and, and with two minutes to go, we scored. I stood up. I don't normally stand up, and I stood up, and I watched. I watched. We won, and it was unbelievable, but you know what? I, I couldn't make a loud noise. I couldn't wake Leanne up if I treasured my life. I, I, had, I, had, I had this joy that was just incomplete. It couldn't, it couldn't fully flow. I had to go to bed, and my heart was beating. I was just lying there. And who can I tell? Who can I WhatsApp? It, it's a very shallow 
Very shallow example, and you know what? It's not really a good example because what Paul's talking about here is a joy that can never be taken away. Unfortunately, my joy was very shortly taken away when we played our next match. And so what I'm talking about here is something that, that is so good, you can't, you can't keep it to yourself. It overflows, and it's not just in this place that this happens to Paul. I want to show you quickly two other places that Paul likewise just overflows. He's talking here in the book of Romans to the church in Rome. He's writing this letter, and again, his theme is just how Jew and Gentile are brought together. And let's just read together from this chapter in Romans. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Similar uh, couple of themes. Notice it's to God. He's focused on God. He's fixated on God. Notice again that he speaks about the abundance of God, the largeness of God. And in the end, he has that phrase, amen, which is just a way of saying, yes, this is, this is what I, I, I agree with. And this is what I love. And then again, he's writing to Timothy, an individual now, and he's reflecting on his own salvation. He's not just talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about myself, this, this, this person that persecuted the church, that was killing Christ followers, and who's now been brought into relationship with God. This is what he writes to Timothy. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's talking about a secure hope. He's talking about a joy that can never be taken away. And it has changed his heart. It's changed his life. He's overflowing with it. Do you know that kind of a joy? Do you know that kind of a treasure that moves you to overflow, that allows you to just focus on who God is, no matter what circumstances are happening? That's that's what we're talking about here, and that's what we're going to unpack. And so as we spend this morning together, let's, let's try and see something of what Paul saw when he wrote these kind of doxologies, when he wrote in this overflowing manner. Can we, can we see who God is more clearly? Can we trust in God? So I'm going to use this, the, just the structure of the passage as our outline for today. The first point is going to be God is able to do far more abundantly. God is able to do far more abundantly. God is at work within us. The second chunk, and lastly, God gets the glory. So let's locate ourselves in the journey so far. Remember, Paul's writing this letter, and he's saying, it's, it's God, it's Jesus who's uniting all things, things in heaven and things on earth. And so it's him that we look to, this great unifier. And don't you think in a time like this, in a city like ours, that's what we need. We need this great unifier where everything seems to be tending towards disunity and fractionalism and kind of intense nationalism across the world. There's a unifier available that we can focus on. So let's look firstly at this, at this truth, that God is able to do far more abundantly. God is able to do far more abundantly. Let's look. It says, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That's how it starts. He looks at who God is, and he sees a God of abundance. Let's break down a few words here. Notice the word there, now. It, it's, it's immediacy. When you use the word now, it's kind of like drawing attention. Let's, let's do this now. There's a, there's a don't delay side of it. He's, he's calling everyone to say this isn't something just for the future. There's something now that we can understand and act upon. There is a God who's able to do. You notice that this is a God who doesn't sit outside of, of time and space. This isn't a God who's waiting for a day in the future. It's now, and it's a God who's able to do. He's able to act right now in this world. And notice he gets abundant. He could have just said he's able to do more abundantly, right? But he has to add an extra word in there. He adds in far. He wants to get, he wants to get us getting excited about this. 
someone here who can, who can do far more abundantly. He's really laying it on. This isn't kind of the cool cynicism or this like under-promise, over-deliver kind of approach. He's just saying, no, when you, when you see who this God is, it's, it's far more abundantly. And then that word abundantly, I think that as, I, as I thought about it, I thought about us as Cape Tonians and our water crisis. And obviously our, our problem was the scarcity of water. And we would, we would make plans accordingly right, and you'd have the, the different mechanisms. I don't know, many of us live in flats now, so we didn't have to do this, but you'd have the water pipes. I remember putting tennis balls, shoving them into all our water pipes so that all the water would make its way down one pipe, and then that pipe would have a pipe, and then that would go somewhere, and we had like jerry-rigged all these things and all trying to figure out what was happening. And then you'd get that little sprinkle of rain, and everyone would be at home with all their systems connected, and like, come on. And sometimes it would just kind of be average, right? And there'd be a little trickle, and it was underwhelming. But every now and again, every now and again, it would be such a storm that your tennis balls would pop in, and there was just chaos, and it was just like, you didn't care. You're like, ah, it's yeah, you know? And you wander outside, and you get wet, and you're just like, this is it. This is the good life, you know? It's overflowing. It's abundant. That's kind of what we're getting a picture of. It's good to plan, and it's good to have all our knowledge. It's good to have systems. But when you get a glimpse of who God is, you suddenly realize, man, all I was thinking, all that I was asking was so small, was so pedestrian compared to the experience of God. His presence changes everything. And as we go through our lives in the city, being part of the city, being involved in the industries we're part of, there's an urgency to our lives. There's a, there's a busyness. There's decisions that need to get made. But what Paul's trying to interrupt us with here is a view of God that says, yeah, if you want all of this to be sustainable, if you want all of this to last for eternity, you need to see who God is. You need to experience him. You need to get out of nature, not measure yourself with man-sized projects and buildings and architecture, as good as that is. You need to get into nature and just remind yourself, oh my goodness, there's a bigger canvas here. There's a creator who's far more abundant than anything I could ask or think. I notice he lays it on finally for us when he speaks about all that we ask or think. I mean, just heap up, heap up everything in your life that you've ever asked for. And remember, you were young once. We've got kids. We know how much we've asked for in our lives. And then heap up everything you've ever thought, those unspoken things. Heap it all up. And guess what? God can far more abundantly exceed all of that. That is the scale on which we're looking at, our Creator, and I love that the word here is all that we ask or think. So you're not just doing it that as an individual. You're doing it as a group of people here. Everything we have asked or thought of can be heaped up, and God is far more abundant than all of that. There's a different scale at play here. And I'd love you to notice that it does not say, I can do far more abundantly. It says, no, to him who's able to do far more abundantly. The pressure is off our shoulders at this point. Paul is getting so excited because he's not looking at himself. He's looking at the Creator. We can't presume upon the support of God for all that we ask or think. And I, I've, I've, I'm reminded of the story in 1 Samuel 4. 1 Samuel 4, you can go and read it. And the Israelites are the people of God. They've been brought out of Egypt. They're experiencing the promised land. And they're fighting against different enemies. The Philistines come. And you know what? They lose. I mean, that's not supposed to happen. The Israelites have ignored God. They're trying to do life in their own strength. And they lose. And it's a message from God. You know what they do? You know what their great plan is in 1 Samuel 4? They go, Oh my gosh, remember God gave us his presence, the ark? Let's go get that, and let's take that into battle. Then we're never going to lose, right? We've got the God stamp of approval. We've got the, we've got the God trinket, you know, the lucky superstitious thing that's going to help us. Their motives were totally for themselves, and they wanted to use God to get on side with their plan. Well, they thought it would work, and they roar when the ark appears at the battlefield. But unfortunately for them, God will never be used to rubber stamp our plans. And they lose to the Philistines. And the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant away from God's people. 
It's an incredible picture of, of how we can, when we presume upon God and go and try and do things in our own strength, might not find that God, who is able, yes, but who's also uniting all things in heaven and earth, won't actually always rubber stamp the things we're doing because he is looking for a far bigger plan beyond our selfish motives. And so here's the picture. God is able to do far more abundantly. This is a God of abundance of largeness. You might say, but Paul, it says God is able, but is he, is he willing? Is he willing? I've faced tough things in my life. I've, I've seen the injustice of, in the world, and I'm, I'm wondering if God is able, fine, but wh- is he willing? And I want you to know that Paul writing this letter is not naive to that question. Of course, he's writing in jail. And makes you wonder, right, who, who in jail writes, God is able to do far more abundantly? Wouldn't you just be like, okay, cool. Why are you in jail then, right? I mean, like, you're in jail, and you're telling us God can do all this amazing things. Well, then why are you not out of jail? It seems like there's a quick case study here at work. Paul's able to write this in the full of deep mystery because Paul knows in his dealings with God over time that what we intend and what we think is happening isn't always what's happening. What if Paul knew at the time he was writing this letter that this was going to be recorded for thousands of years for us to now read today? That part of what God was doing in his mysterious ways was preparing Paul and using him to extend his kingdom in in mysterious ways. A couple of things we need to bank is that whilst we know that God is able, we also know that he's willing and we also know that he is good and we also know that he's powerful and we also know that he's loving. And that's why Paul is able to write this while in jail. I want you to hold this thought because you could ask the question, well, Paul, how do you know for sure? We're going to get to it. We're going to get to it. But here's the big theme. Paul writing says, God is unifying all things on heaven and on earth, and he's able to do it far more abundantly than we ask or imagine. Okay, so you think it's just a work of God. Well, that's an amazing thing. It's the next bit, right? He says, God is able to do far more abundantly, and God is at work within us. That's the second part. God is at work within us. He, he qualifies it, and he's saying, and he, and he gives Focus to it, and he says it's according to the power at work within us. Paul is amazed that God works with us. God works within us. He's overflowing in excitement about this fact. There's this God who's beyond, who's abundant, who's incredibly big, who's created us all, but now that God is also within us. He's at work within us. He's taken very ordinary people like you and me and, and doing something with our lives. There's mystery, but there's also Incredible inclusion. That's what Paul is able to celebrate as he writes from jail. He said, I don't know why I was picked. I don't know why I'm here. I just can't quite fathom it. But God is at work and his power is at work within me. And we do maybe, as, as those in Ephesus right now, have a position of weakness. Our leaders in jail. We're so busy fighting with each other, Jews and Gentiles, struggling to see eye to eye. But that's not where the power lies. Power lies within a God who's at work within us. That's the humble confidence that we can turn to. And I I really want to focus on, again, the plural here. Notice, according to the work within me, or within you, individual, no, it's, again, the power at work within us. This starts to hopefully percolate inside of us and start to make us think that what God's doing in our lives in the city of Cape Town is so much more than just us individually, but us as a collective. To unite all things on heaven and earth is going to take a diverse group of people. It's going to take your life and my life. Uh, in those days, Jew and Gentile, in our life, those in traditional families, those that have come from broken families, those that have been divorced, those that have been um, widowed, those that come from uh, privilege, those that don't come from privilege, those that are sick, those that are healthy, those that are qualified, those that are unqualified, those that are men, women, old, young. I mean, it's going to take that level of diversity 
to reflect the abundance of who God is. And that's where God wants to do his work. It's, it's remarkable. Do not be tempted in this city that's telling you to duck out of community. Don't be tempted to believe that lie. If I think of my own heart and my relationship with people, I often long for perfection in others. I long for perfection in others. I want community to come ready-made, you know? I just want it to be like a little Woolies meal, you know? Just, just there it is, and it's done, and I can just, you know, just to consume it. I mean, that would be fantastic. But you know what? It requires years of intentional work. It requires sticking through the hardness, you know, forming, storming, norming. That, that, the whole cycle of community can't be short-cut. It can't be microwaved, basically. It, it takes time. And uh, one of the more embarrassing stories on my honeymoon was that I decided to read a Russian author for some reason. We were in Thailand, and I got the Brothers Kamazal. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. But it was this book that was recommended by various people, so I got this book. And there was one passage which I was reminded of as I was slogging my way through it. I don't necessarily recommend it. But the author writing at the time had this to say, which I could relate to, and my desire for ready-made perfect community. This is what he had to say in the book. He said, the more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. In my dreams, I often make plans for the service of humanity, and perhaps I might actually face crucifixion if it were suddenly necessary. Yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together. I know from experience, as soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs me, restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men. One, because he's too long over his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps on blowing his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me. But it has always happened that the more I hate men individually, the more I love humanity. These are challenging words, because if you didn't like me, when everything quietens down, man, you can have a vision for the kind of parent you're going to be, the kind of colleague, the kind of husband. It's just like, whoa. And then when you enter in, when you wake up, it's as if all of that evaporates and suddenly you're dealing with very annoying people that just don't get it. And why can't anyone else see it the way I see it? That wonderful team building exercise that you'd planned, perhaps that family holiday, that family occasion, that, that Christmas, that Easter, perhaps even your life group filled with people that just get on your nerves as soon as they get close. I love humanity. It's just people I can't stand. We kind of be a summary. And in our city, where it's about efficiency and urgency and getting things done, this can quickly creep in. Of course, we're sophisticated enough to kind of keep it inside and not leak, okay? But it can be this motive, this inner talk. Now, there's a little bit of a debate here, because that's obviously beliefs that we have, and our behaviors are totally different. And this is a bit of a theme of the book of Ephesians that Paul was concerned about. He's saying, guys, you can't have a bunch of beliefs and not have consistent behaviors, and I just want to take a little bit of a moment here to say that there's power within us, but what this power does within us is it actually starts to close the gap. It's starting to close the gap between what we believe and how we behave. This is part of what God does when he moves into our hearts and he renovates it. And now there are some thoughts that go against that. The one thought is to say, no, no, Paul, the fact that I have beliefs and behaves that are different, that's completely the human condition. I am just always going to be inconsistent. There's kind of a whole flow in humanities that kind of says, chuckle, chuckle at yourself. Isn't it ironic? You believe one thing, you do another. That is what it means to be human. You say one thing, you do another. You pick favorites and you act accordingly. Sometimes you hold contradictory views, directly contradictory views, in order to justify your own behaviors. You allow whatever emotions uh, come up to, to dictate your response, even though it's against something you believe. Beliefs and behaviors are severed. And the thing that secures you is that, that I'm special no matter what I do. Uh, so if I say and treat others differently, it doesn't seem to matter. There's one school of thought. 
The other school of thought says, no, no, okay, we've got to do something about this. We've got to close the gap. We need to get our behaviors right. If we start behaving right, that'll then change our beliefs. And there's some psychology that's gone into it. Uh, maybe you've read these articles. There are many of them at the moment around your morning routine. Have you read these? It seems like every five tips for a good morning, seven tips for a good morning. Everyone wants to know about the morning routine. And part of the research coming out says if you make your bed, for instance, you are more successful. And part of the thinking there is if you make your bed and you, and you win on that front, you go into the rest of your day thinking, I'm the type of person that gets the job done. I'm the kind of person that digs deep. And your identity is actually shaped by the fact that you made your bed and you kind of nailed your morning routine. That sets you up for the rest of the day to be going through it going, I am the type of person that does well in life. And there's some merit to this. Some of the sports people will tell you, Michael Phelps, that before swimming in an Olympic race, he would do everything according to the clockwork. So that by the time he stood on the blocks, he kind of said, I had already accomplished 70% of my mission. It was only now the last 30% that I had to do, which of course is rubbish because he's starting the beginning of the race. He's got 100% of the work to do. But in his mind, he's going, no, no, I listened to my soundtrack. I swam. I did my stretches. I'm now only got 30% left to go. So in other words, the thinking there is if you behave in certain ways, you give yourself confidence and you change your identity. You become an Olympian. Of course, the problem with this is what happens if you get injured? What then? What happens if you can't nail the behaviors? Do you lose your identity? It's a bit of a problem. And in this world that prizes human resources, notice the word, human resources, like you're just a resource that needs to be efficient and able, otherwise you're just discarded. We prize the competent, but the sick and old are kind of discarded. If you can't get the behaviors right, you lose all value under this model. The final one is, okay, you just need to get your beliefs right. We're going to close this gap. Some are happy with the gap. Some will say, no, behave yourself towards it. Others will say, no, you need to change your beliefs. You need to change your thinking, and your behaviors will follow. You need, to, you need to get an identity aside from all that you do. Your actions are not the source of your value. They are just the course of your value. In other words, your source comes from elsewhere, and then you flow out in actions towards others. I will love others because I'm loved. Loved people love people. I will forgive others because I'm forgiven. Forgiven people forgive. The only problem with this model, as good as it sounds, is, well, where does that identity come from? Where do you get such a rock-solid identity that would allow you to behave in such selfless ways towards others? Where does that kind of identity come from? You might go through life going, haters are going to hate. I don't care what other people think. But have you ever tried to live like that? It's incredibly hard to get that solid an identity that allows you to live out in these ways. So we appear to be stuck. I mean, there's clearly a gap between our beliefs and our behaviors. God is saying through Paul that actually there's a power that can be at work within us. There's something that can happen when God gets invited into our lives. And what that does is it actually blasts us out of our self-centeredness. And and it says to those who say, is it beliefs or is it behaviors? It says, no, no, you're asking the wrong question. It's, It's who takes your beliefs and your behaviors and molds you and shapes you. Where do you take your contradictions, your your your, um, your love for humanity, but your hate for people. What do you do with the mess that is us, the human condition? Do you know what you do? You take it to your creator. And that's the good news. That's, that's the incredibly good news. You have a God of abundance who's beyond, but you have a God who is at work within us, in power within us. And that brings us to our final point this morning, which is that God gets the glory. What, what am I talking about here? I'm talking about, again, the phrase, to him. Do you see it there? Right at the first, it said, now to him. And again, we get it in verse 21. To him. Be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. These words to him become the focus of our time together. This is, in many ways, the the high point of the book of 
of Ephesians, and, and, it's, and it's at this point that Paul says, don't look at yourself, your behaviors, your beliefs. Yes, you're inconsistent, but look to him. Don't look at your circumstances. I'm in jail. You know, I'm, not, I'm not looking there. I'm looking to him. He is my focus, not towards lesser things. What gets our attention gets our affection, and so he's trying to get our attention towards him. And you notice something. He says, to him be glory. In other words, to him be the focus. Let him be the attention. Let him be the centering amongst a group of people as diverse as you. And I think he says something surprising. He says, to him be glory in the church. He says, in the church, like that is where things are going to happen. This is a group of people, motley crew, small. He's saying, Paul, does the church have a future? Uh, Paul's saying, of course. I mean, it's exactly there that the glory of God is going to be put on display. It's exactly in this group of people. Unity of diversity is going to be put on display. Not in the building, not in a long established kind of package deal world. No, the called out ones, the people are where the glory is going to sit. And so, Returning to our question of beliefs and behaviors. Remember what Paul's done here is he's written a whole book in the first three chapters that actually been mainly around the beliefs. He's actually said, guys, these are important, your beliefs and behaviors. And so for three chapters, I have been speaking about your identity. I've spoken about a God who's stepped into history and who's redeemed you and called you to himself. And you'll notice you're all different. Some of you are Jews, some of you are Gentiles, but you have this identity in him. That is who you are. And this is what God has done. He's taken all your contradictions, all your rebellion, which all at root come down to that lie that it's up to me to make the most of my life, that that I need to be independent of God and of others. I've taken that and I've dealt with it by sending my son, Jesus Christ, who's, who's come to unite heaven and earth. Your rebellion and God's perfection come together in one person. There's no one else. There's no one else. It is only Christ who can rec- represent us, fallen humanity, and and absorb the wrath of God that is, should rightfully have been ours. I want to really say that this is good news, and, and, and Paul is not trying to create a goody two-shoes group of people. He's not trying to say, guys, here's how you can scrub up and be religious. He doesn't want to create a boring group of people that kind of go through life trying to figure out how to stay on the right side of God. What he's declaring is good news that empowers them to live the good life, good news that empowers them to fly the airplane the right side up, good news that allows them to unite heaven and earth, to unite their beliefs and their behaviors. He's, he's declaring the power that is available to each and every one of us to face massive difficulties. Greg shared as we worship together, the, the one who's our shelter, the one who's our shield, the one who, the one who on, on our behalf has fought the biggest battle of our rebellion, of our inconsistencies. He wants to secure our identity, and we, we spoke about this as he says, you're a, new, you're a new nation now. And he gets even more intimate. He says, you're a new family. And then he actually says, you know what, you're like a temple that's been built together, stones that have been drawn as different as you are. He gets more and more intimate as he describes it in this book. He says, you know, you're a citizen, you're a family member. No, you are a temple that can house the very presence of God. And we're going to pivot from next, well, not from next week. Kev's going to be with us preaching his own message, but from the week after, we're going to pivot and we're going to then say, in light of our identity, in light of this, who we are, that we've been united by Christ, Here's how we can flow out in behavior. I said I would return to the question, obviously, that, hey, Paul, you're saying God is able to do far more abundantly. He's at work within us, and to him be the glory. How do we know? I mean, how do we know, as Paul's writing this from jail, that God is willing? How do we know that he's willing? I said I'd return to that, and you'll see it, because in verse 21, Paul himself writes, to him be glory, not just in the church, bringing a diverse group of people together, but in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. See, he's, he's saying God is going to get the glory 
in Christ Jesus. It's not going to skip a generation. When he wrote that, it would have sounded quite arrogant. It would have gone, Paul, like seriously, for all generations? I mean, I don't know if the church has a future, maybe for 100 years or 1,000 years, but to say the church has a future for all generations would have sounded super presumptuous. I think that's where I would have underlined and said, check on this in 30 years, right? Let's see if the next generation really gets it. Isn't that encouraging for the parents amongst us that that the generations that flow out, for those of you that are sowing into young people's lives, even if you're not a parent, to know that that passes on, that faith continues, that that has been the case and will be the case forever and ever. But who is it that gets spoken of? Who is it that is the focus? It's not us as the church as much as God glories in us as a group of people. There's many more that he's glorying in. It's in Christ Jesus. It's all about Jesus. God united heaven and earth. He broke into time and space in Jesus. We might get frustrated by people. You might feel it like, oh my goodness, can you imagine being God amongst us? <laughs> like, Imagine how frustrated Jesus must have got, giving up his perfection to be with us, squabbling around who's going to sit at the right hand, who's going to get the inside track, who's going to be favored. I mean, at that point, he could have cracked the biggest, oh my goodness, of his life. But yet he, for the love set before him, those dimensions we spoke about, height, width, depth, was the only one who for once had his beliefs and his behaviors aligned. He was the only one who actually lived the incredibly consistent life that God calls us to. He's the only one who truly brought glory to God. And he offered himself in our place on the cross. But he didn't just die there, he rose again. And out of that seeming defeat, the church has a future. Out of that seeming defeat, you and I have power The same power that is at work in Christ, who raised him from the dead, is at work within us. Do you see him uniting all things in him, things in heaven and on earth, and using you and I to do that? He moved into time and space, and he continues to do that. He he is the one that we rest on when we know that the church has a future. And so we all have a choice today. As I conclude, we all have a choice. We have a choice now, as the writer would say, now to him be the glory. Now to him be the glory. This isn't a case of tolerating his presence in your life. This isn't a case of some marginal consent. This isn't the call to change a few things on the fringes. Our response should be the same as Paul's when he says, amen. He says, yes, I agree. He says, there is a God who can do far more abundantly than I ask all that I ask or think. There is a God at work within me. The power that is at work with him that rose Christ from the dead is at work in me. And to him be glory. In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. I'm going to call the band up now. And I'm going to read this passage over us one more time as we respond in song. Will you stand with me? When Paul sees God rescuing us, laying down his life for us, the only consistent one. This isn't a case of a Cape Town trickle, uh, desperately trying to capture water. No, this is an overflowing abundance that is getting shared to us. And may we just close our eyes now and as I read this over us, may we just... Ask God, some of us for the first time, some of us anew, freshly, to reveal himself to us, to allow his spirit to fill us to all the fullness of God, that we'd know the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of his love for us. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. O come, let us adore him together.